You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Thanks for listening. The interview subject I've got prepared for you, the cavalcade of stars continues because you're about to listen to a conversation with Dirk Verburen from Megadeth, Soilwork, and the reason for the chat on this episode, Cadaver. Cadaver have a brand new album out, soon that is, on the 27th of November 2020 called Edder and Bile. We talk about that and also the EP that's in market currently. You can check that out on Spotify or Apple Music called DGAF. But it wouldn't be a conversation with Dirk if we didn't talk about Megadeth as well. And we also managed to chat about the great and legendary Steve DiGiorgio and some of the work Dirk has done and is planning, it turns out, with him. So here he is, Dirk Verburen. Hey, Andy. How's it going, man? It's going very well, brother. How's things for you? Very well, thank you. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. There's a bit of a delay, but all good otherwise. No worries. Sweet. I love the uh, I love the soil work poster that you got up the back there. Oh, is, yeah. is it an award? <laughs> is it? That's cool. It's like um, it's like this lighted sign that they had made when we played Bakken one day, and nobody else in the band took it. So I was like, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> I love that, man. Yeah, I love your work there, you know, with Bjorn, because I think Bjorn's one of my favourite interview subjects, actually, I've got to say. And, uh, you know, he just seems to have worked with so many great musicians, such as yourself and Ralph Santola and the like. You know, good musicians attract good musicians, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I like to believe so. But, yeah, Bjorn's amazing, man. He, is, he truly is. Well, look, I've got to tell you, I'll kick things off, I suppose. Are you, are you on a, what sort of time scale are you on at the moment? Have we got 20 minutes or so or a bit longer? Yeah, we, we probably got a bit longer. I think actually let me double check. Yeah, you're you're my last interview today, so I don't have you know, I don't have another one waiting after you. <laughs> Sweet. Well I'll I'll make it worthwhile then. <laughs> Rest assured. Yeah. I'll make it fun and interesting. So look, we let's talk about Cadaver, of course, because that's a compelling event for the conversation. Um look, I, I was searching I do this with interviews and with new releases like this. So I was searching for a sentence to summarize what you've come up with, that is Cadaver have come up with what you've conjured across the EP and also the album. And this is what I came up with. It's, it's a bit, uh, you know, um, you probably heard this before, but here goes putrid, brutal and blasted grindcore commissioned by the devil himself. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like it. You know, <laughs> That's great. I, I think I really, I, on a serious note, I think you, you you truly are, you know, the pair of you here, Anders and yourself, you're giving Sam Lee and Pete and Terrorizer a run for their money. You know, within a few years now, we've got two of the two of the best sounding grindcore albums I've ever heard. Uh, you know, the songwriting's great, but the sound is what I'm talking about. And even last night I had a chat to Daz from Benediction as well, and their album this year sounds great. It's just, it's so great to hear I'm not going to say reactivated, but you know what I'm saying. They're bands that went away for a bit now have come back and the quality's still there. And for an old fan like me, that's, that's so important because so many of my memories uh, from childhood, you know, teenage years, I'm 42, so teenage years up to now, they're wrapped around listening to bands that you've been in and, 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 and Benediction and the like. So, uh, you know, after all of that, mate, I know you're a busy fella. You've got a lot going on. You know, and there's that other band, you know, the other band that everybody knows that you're in. I'm sure we'll chat about that. But look, from Cadaver's perspective, it's been 16 years. So why, why did you and Anders decide to partner and, you know, resurrect the old beast? 
Well, I mean, it just kind of happened, you know, it was really nothing, nothing planned. I, I met him because uh, back in 2014, early in that year, I, uh, I got a call from Satyricon, from Satir, uh, you know, if I could fill in for him on 70,000 tons of metal crews because, you know, uh, Frost at the time couldn't come into the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, I, I, you know, having been a Satyricon fan for a really, really long time, of course, I was very happy to, to do that. And, um, and Andrews plays bass in Satyricon. And so yep. we got to talking and I got to, you know, I, I got to tell him how much of a fan of Cadaver I was and how hallucinating anxiety that the first album kind of really stood out to me at the time, you know, being a teenager. And it was just this, this yeah. very unique sound and a very unique record. And, uh, and he's like, well, you know what? The band hasn't been around for a while, but I haven't stopped writing stuff. So would you like to hear it? And of course, I wasn't going to say no to that. So <laughs> so, uh, so from there, you know, we, we just kind of started working on things and we had time. And in 2016, at one point, I was in Norway briefly and we got to even jam together. And that kind of set the course for let's do a record. You know, this is working great. We get along. We have fun. Mm. You know, we're on the same page. We both kind of have the same background. He's a little bit older than me, you know, and he was making music before I was. But, but um, you know, I, I grew up with all that stuff. It's really important to me. So we kind of understand yes. how it, how it, you know, how Cadaver should sound, I guess, today is the best way to put it. So, so did Anders write the music and then, you know, send it to you via, you know, Google Drive or what have you? Or, or did you, were you actually integral to the songwriting process? No, for the most part, he wrote the stuff and would send it to me. Um, he had some stuff laying around. We, we started working on that way. And then in 2016, so a couple of years after we had started, uh, when I got a chance to jam with him, that kind of became that jam, which turned into Feed the Pigs, the uh, third song on the album. That kind of became the blueprint for uh, what the album was going to be. So we actually, at that point, okay. discarded some of the stuff we had worked on so far, which was... You know, some of it we kept, but a lot of it was we're like, ah, maybe we should just more go in this direction. And uh, and then from there, he would just send me things and, and I would send them back and he'd be like, that's not at all the drums I imagined, but it's great. So let's keep it, you know. So yes. it's kind of like, the, the you know, the way we work together was kind of like somebody would bring an idea and then the other person would bring a totally unexpected idea. And like, oh, this is killer. And then it would lead songs in a certain direction, you know, if, if that kind of makes sense. Mm, yeah. uh, so it was a very organic process we just kind of naturally you know work together in a way where things just fell into place so it was very fun very effortless in a way and before we knew it we had a bunch of songs and he came over here to LA where I live and and we hopped into the studio (laughs) (laughs) hey how how do you find living in in LA because I understand you're from Antwerp originally is it was it a bit of a culture shock going there because I know I had culture shock there to be honest with you did you do you find that when you're yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At first I was really lost, you know, so I, I lived in France for a long time. I grew up in Antwerp and then, you know, well, outside of Antwerp in a small town. And then I lived in France and Paris, which is a bigger city, mm. not like LA, but bigger at least. And then, and then I lived again in a smaller city there where I went to music school and started doing music. But when I came here, it was definitely at first, you know, finding my bearings took a while. My wife, who I moved here for and who had lived here already, she kind of knew her way around. So in the beginning, okay. I relied a lot on her. And, yeah. uh, but once you, it's with these big, I mean, this is a massive city. It's just, it's sprawling. And so when you start kind of knowing where to go and what's where, then you start to be able, at least for me, you know, to appreciate the, the kind of the vibe that lives here and, and 
obviously the climate being pretty genius, you know, like <laughs> being really nice, like most of the year, even though it's like, here, it's like Australia. Fires. Climate, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very, it's very similar. So once you fall into that, it becomes hard to imagine going back to uh, Belgium or, or France, which, you know, are, are beautiful places that have a lot of good stuff, but they also have a lot of crap weather. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the culture and the history there is unprecedented. I mean, it's you can spend your entire life not even touching the surface, really, but the weather sucks. It's like people here who live in Melbourne, which is a bit similar to Europe. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So, you know, and, and I love, I, I would really miss Europe if I never got to go there. But obviously, with my job, I get to be there, you know, I get to tour there, I get to visit my family and stuff. So in the meantime, LA is great, because everything with music is here, you know, I, I, yes. I'm just here and all the people I work with will come around at some point. So it's awesome. You know, I don't have to go anywhere <laughs> for that. <laughs> hey, just talking about the sound that you captured then on on the album here so uh the album of course is called edda and bile and the the ep was called djf and i couldn't really hear that there was a lot of differences between the two so were they recorded in the same the same sessions or were they different sessions well it's interesting there were actually two sessions um but uh the ep songs were actually recorded at the same time as most of the album and there are some songs on the album that were recorded at a later session so because um, we just felt like once we had the album songs, there was one song, I think, that we discarded, which we didn't think lived up to the hype. Oh, yeah. And then Anders had these new ideas. So he's like, man, I want to come back and just record a few more songs. You know, and one of them ended up being Circle of Morbidity, which was the first single. Nice. Great song. For, yeah, for Decimal Magazine. And he really felt like he wanted that song to be, you know, kind of the, the what would bring people to the new cadaver, like cadaver V3, so to speak. So, um, but yeah, the, the recording, you know, I'll tell you one thing we wanted to do is really respect the old school tradition of jamming together. So we, you know, most of the songs were recorded, him and I playing together in the room without is that right? just hammering it out. Yeah, because I really insisted on that. And uh, that's one of the things I like about all that, you know, thrash, death, black, grindcore that was created in the, you know, early to early 80s to early 90s was just that raw feeling that you get when you don't try to control things too much you know Mm. so we decided to like give it a shot let's do this let's play together and see where it leads us and it worked out so you know it sounded good and and now we all agree that like after trying it like the next album we're definitely gonna do it the same way again you know just try and let the music breathe in the way that it wants to breathe I'm so glad you say the next album because that was going to be one of the questions I had because I think, uh, I mean, it's, you know, like bands sort of come together and you, you do this, but I know money is at the centre of it all because it has to be, you know, being realistic, you got no doubt, you know, if you haven't got a family, you may be planning one, but you still got living expenses and the, there's the other band that you're in that I said. And, you know, I mean, time is of the essence, but also, you know, these things have to sell. They have to actually make an impact. They do. And we're in a very strange time when it comes to that, a transitional time, because I don't know if you see the album sales nowadays. I get this email every week from Ryan Downey, a great guy who kind of compiles all numbers yes. of streams and et cetera. It's very interesting to see how a band like Pearl Jam releases an album and it sells 70,000 copies. And somebody commented they probably gave away more promos like that than that in the 90s. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. So yeah. album sales are really nothing anymore, you know, and uh and and but at the same time you you know we're similar age i'm 45 so we grew up in an era where albums were 
everything and, and you don't want to give up on that because they tell a story and they have their own era they have their own aura and vibe and, and so it's something that personally i always want to keep doing and even if the album becomes more of a means to do other things that then generate money versus you know the album being the central thing that sells on you tour to promote it that's fine too you know as long as we can make it work and as long as the passion is there and, and a label like nuclear blast is they're willing yeah. to jump in behind it which you know we're so happy that they stepped in and saw the value in this and and and, and i've really been i have to say you know i've worked with nuclear blast for many years obviously through slow work and you know they've been they've been close to my heart for for a long time but they really stepped it up on this on this album and they believe in it so that's you know that's obviously essential in, in keeping on with the band as you said I'm absolutely with you on that point. You know, I sat in on one of those uh, media things on Zoom, like this platform here for um, Michael Schenker about two or three weeks ago. He was doing a question and answer thing and it was a nuclear blast hosted thing. And it was in that moment, I think, I always understood the value that nuclear blast brought to the market, but hearing an artist as esteemed and as critically acclaimed as yourself say the things that I'm thinking about the label, they're really doing a community service in a lot of ways, aren't they? They really are, you know, and I think there's a lot of passionate people in there that are really, you know, going the extra mile to, to make these things happen because for them too, it's a transitional period. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, without having had extended discussions about their finances, because I have no idea how all that works, but yeah, there's a lot going on there too, to be able to, to keep that machine from rolling. And, and so, you know, one could argue that, oh, it's, it's time for the downfall of labels because you know, they've long been taking way too much of a cut and stuff. And, you know, to some extent, I can agree with that. It's been that way since releasing albums was invented yeah. in, in the time of blues. 1930s, yeah. Yeah, the, the artists mm. always got this tiny cut. And now you have something like Bandcamp where an artist gets 75%, which is absolutely amazing. And I love Bandcamp so much. You know, I hope it always keeps going. But on the other hand, as many people who have tried to self-release an album will attest, I mean, just ask Obituary or ask like mm -hmm. Devin Townsend or recently Kiko Lurero who released a solo album as a, you know, as a, um, an online, like uh, what you call sure. it, crowdfunding campaign. It's yeah. a ton of work. And that's, I think, when a lot of people realize, wow, the label really does do a lot of stuff that, you know, as an artist don't necessarily want to spend like months and months doing because I want to be writing music i want to be playing Correct. music I'm yeah. doing interviews so in a way you know I'm, yeah. i don't know how it's all, all gonna go and how things are gonna like how the puzzle pieces are all gonna fit together in the end but but i'm very happy that you know labels like nb are there too you know and also a lot of other labels to, to kind of keep the ball rolling very well summarized mate yeah very accurate summary of the situation uh right there and uh yeah, it's. I look. I hear a lot of people bag on the labels, and there are some shitty. Just about all of the majors. Yeah, they do rip bands off. They put them on eight and nine deals. But Roadrunner were doing that back in the day as well. Deicide, I understand, were the only band to fulfill a contract with Roadrunner. So it's it's not just the yeah, it was the indies too that were pissing bands around. But but Nuclear Blast, I think I haven't heard anything. Look, there probably is negative stories, but I certainly haven't heard any. And I've spoken to six hundred of you guys at this point in time. You know, full on musicians who have contracts and management and stuff. And look, yeah, Napalm, Sumerian. There are some really good indies out there. You know, Osmos. I think like that. You know, I, I heard some things here and there. I know there's some shit going on with the earache at the moment. You know, with Dan Seagrave, have you been seeing that online? What's going on there? You you following it? Yeah, I am. You know, I'm interested because Eric was that was my label as as a teenager. Like 
yeah. anything Eric I bought. I would receive their promo cassettes. I would get their flyers in the mail and be like, I'm going to buy that and that. And I spent all the little <laughs> money I had going on Eric stuff. So for me, it was like for many years, the biggest thing. And then to see kind of that, you know, all those bands, whether it's Napalm, Cathedral, Brutal Truth, all the bands that were on there eventually all started saying like this label is a huge ripoff. They, they owe us money, this and that. It was just this huge downfall over time, you know, coupled with the fact that they started making some artistic choice that didn't really maybe fit in with, with a lot of their crowd. So it really was a fall from grace. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of a shame, you know, because it was really a massive, important name that did so much for extreme metal. So mm. this is just another one of those things, you know, or unfortunately that carries on. And, you know, it's kind of, it's the nature of the beast though, man. You know, the way I look at it is like, yeah. you're always going to have, clashes you know in this kind of setting like it's it's the there's the music business contradiction right those two words don't go together so <laughs> great it's no, always you're right. going to be a mess. yeah well it was very you know i i don't know him that well but you know harold um mortis we change messages from time to time and uh, i've interviewed him too and i think he's a tremendous artist you know great you're very unique you know and he's you know a black metal original as well but i had to send him the video of al from al dawson from earache talking about because i asked al a question on his instagram feed that was me that asked him about why the mortis catalog was pulled and he was al actually did take the time to address it he said look it's just a licensing thing it just takes us the company that we've licensed the recordings to to put them up online just takes effectively just takes a while to get around to doing it that's what i took from it so sometimes it's it's the intentions there but the execution isn't so it's not always because a label's trying to fuck around an artist yeah, no, and I agree with that. And, you know, a lot of people in the same way to take it back to Cadavra, it's the same thing about us, you know, because those those couple of first albums are also not anywhere to be found. And, yeah. and I think the hard thing there is that, you know, and then somebody like Anders goes and asks those questions, like, is there something we can do? You know, you basically don't get much of an answer from what I understand. So that's where yeah. it's a little bit of a shame that, you know, I know those people, you know, when you work at a small label like Earache, it's not a huge label with like hundreds of people working there, not even close. So it's a lot of work and you probably can't answer every inquiry but when it comes to the bread and butter of your label like the bands you know the like some of those bands like napalm that really made the label in a way with their sales at the time you know and when they mm. first came out i mean it's, it's it's those are people that you want to go go far in, in kind of establishing a good relationship and i just think it's a shame that that didn't happen i don't know who's you know who's to blame and stuff yeah. but you have this many bands that are you know complaining about the same thing yeah. there starts to be enough red flags yeah. and we're like okay, you know it's it's too bad you know but oh, i'll always respect yeah. as you know for what they did for for this community because they really at one point they really had their finger on the pulse of the underground more than anybody you know even nuclear blast coming out at the time and all the other labels i mean you couldn't beat earache and you know anywhere between like 87 and and you know i'd say 90 or Al- something altars of like, madness <laughs> right there and Grind Crusher, the compilation, that's probably like, you know, Grind Crusher is probably the, the compilation of all compilations when it comes to extreme metal. You know, there's Great. been a few. That one to me is like every single band on there. You know, the original one that, that just had 10 bands and they did the extended version. But that original one, which also came with that 7-inch, which had You Suffer on one side and then Electro Hippies, like another one-second song on the other side, which is absolutely <laughs> brilliant, you know. I mean, that was just like, come on, like, respect. Yeah. <laughs> Add respect. Yeah, well, it's an authentic representation of what they're doing. 
you know, they're, not, they're putting out there like, like it or lump it, you know, listen to it or fuck off. You know what I mean? It's just, this is what we do. This is who we are. And for, for kids back then, like you and I, we get that. And it's like my people. Exactly. That's, that sums it up, man. That, that's it. It's that punk spirit, you know, it's that kind of re- rebellion against everything. And, and that music just embodied it as well. Right. It reminds me of when uh, I was talking to Phil Anselmo about this, but remember when um, the uh, Lords of Chaos film was released? It was in theatres for one night. In Australia, I think it was, I think globally, it was just one night. They just went blitz, blitz every theatre on this single night. And near me here, like there's a mum and dad shopping mall, you know, there's mega shopping mall things. And they've got, you know, all the James Bond films and all of the other Frozen and all the things my daughters like to watch there. And the theatre had gone to the trouble of actually dressing up this part of the theatre where where Lords of Chaos was playing with upside-down crosses and hacked-up bodies and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, we're impinging on the mainstream. We're just, fuck off, this is our space now. If you don't like it, don't be near us. That's amazing. I love that, man. That's that's a great story. I didn't know that they had done that. That's amazing. Yeah, they did. And but what they did was, I thought, I'll wait until I'll, I'll need to go to the bathroom or something like that because you can drink in there. Um, and and I went out and they pulled everything down, so they left it up for about half an hour only. That was probably well. It's like I wanted to get a video and photos because they went to so much effort to do it, and and I just so appreciated that they do it because it's so rare for what we what we love and what you do to be represented in the mainstream arena. Absolutely. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the word arena because it made me think about that BBC arena series back in the late 80s, I believe it was, where they had a heavy metal documentary in like five parts. And it started with like Ozzy and Metallica, you know, like, you know, bands that were sort of going mainstream at the time. I mean, Ozzy certainly was mainstream already. And Elvira, Mistress of the Dark Host, that ended in the last episode with Palm Death. You know, remember that? And yes, that episode was just like I couldn't believe one of my favorite bands was like on this huge TV station and and it had so much attention where they were interviewing the guys and showing the the performances and I was just like this is the best thing ever you know. <laughs> well, do do you remember when was it Napalm Death or Extreme Noise Terror teamed with KLF on the British Music oh, Awards? One second, sorry. You're on. Here is a Sorry, one second. That's all right. Dog there, I get it. I've got a dog too. Yeah, three dogs and a cat, and they're facing off currently. But my wife just took the dog back out of the room. Sorry, sorry. I have to ask you that question again. No, that's fine. I was just saying the. um, I remember there was a. I've seen it on. I don't remember it at the time, but I've since seen it on YouTube. But no, it it was extreme noise terror. Now that I think about it, teamed with the KLF for a Brit for a British. Remember that? And you could see the yes, audience going, what is this? You know, <laughs> they had no idea. <laughs> you could see the smart asses in the audience going, oh, yeah, we get it. You're just punking us. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, I think I think it's, it's always going to stay some kind of a counterculture movement, you know, and that's part of why I love it because it's kind of like, it's my own identity very much the style of music it always has been and it's it's something that just by its nature i mean if you listen like for example to the cadaver album it can't conceivably become a mainstream thing it's just too intense for an extreme for most people to get a grasp on you know so so uh, oh, but those who understand you know those who know they get such pleasure out of it right so that's kind of the that's kind of the beauty of this whole thing to me and it always will be 
I've got to I've got to switch and now talk about Megadeth for a bit, you know, because I feel like your inclusion, I think Chris's inclusion and now your inclusion brings some, and I'm not heaping shit on Dave here at all, but it brings a lot of credibility to the band, a shitload of credibility to people like me, because I'm I'm an old school Megadeth fan, but I tuned out for years, like maybe 20 years. You, you can understand, you know, um, and and I, I just I. I've got to be honest, I just think Dave's pursuit of, you know, the light speed God of Thunder, I, I don't want to, and I'll preface this by saying, I don't want to put you in a difficult position by having to answer something, if you know what I mean, because I, I hear rumours about Dave being difficult to work with, and I don't want to put you in a, I put Frank Ferrer from Guns N' Roses in a similar position, to be honest with you, and then I thought, should I have done that, you know, but I guess my point is, is that I think Dave's pursuit of the, the light speed God of Thunder thing has come at the expense of melodic balance. So songs like 99 Ways to Die and Angry Again are my favourite Megadeth cuts, by the way. Like, I love the thrash stuff, but when he gets that blend right, he's just unbeatable. Some of the best... I, I would even say 99 Ways to Die, in my view, is my favourite heavy metal song ever recorded because it's just right. got everything. It's got that nice flamenco flourish from Marty that I know Kiko can do in his sleep, you know. Um, you know, the, the drumming is something that you can do fairly easily with all due respect to, to Nick Menza. But do, do you have a lot of input into the way to, to the, the songwriting, you know, the songwriting process? I mean, I wouldn't say a lot because obviously, you know, Dave is the man, right, as we know, and, and he it's his vision and it always has been, you know, whenever there's been a Megadeth album that came out. Sure, there, there, there have been, you know, obviously in the early years, it was a, more of a collaborative thing with Ellison and, and the early members but mm. um but it's always been dave you know a lot of a majority of the ideas usually have come from dave and then a lot of how it turns out in the end is, is kind of through dave's filter so but this being said you know he did allow us quite some freedom i was actually a little bit surprised at how much freedom i had ultimately in the studio to kind of try things and you know add little things that i would do on drums versus you know what was typically done in Megadeth and just kind of be like, I'll oh, add this accent here and do that. And he, he loved it. So, so, you know, I, I got a lot of freedom to do that. And then he also invited everybody to contribute to the writing process as well. So I did that too. I actually, I played guitar too. So I actually wrote some, some stuff on guitar and I don't know yet going to be on the album or not. So I don't want to talk too much about it, but you know, I, that was all welcomed with open arms, you know, and was, was worked on together and, 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 and perfected and turned into Megadeth songs. So, so I think, you know, I really can't complain about that part of it. I think when it comes to the style of the album and stuff, it's really too early to tell. And I'm like you, I, I, I mean, I, my first record was Peace Cells that I bought. So that's yes, kind of I mean. like, yeah. you know, my, my Megadeth forever, you know, in a way, but, but I also really love the whole period around euthanasia and, and countdown and those songs, you know, 99 Ways to Die, Angry Again. We actually played Angry Again oh. for the first time live together on the last tour we did which was just before the pandemic hit over in europe and uh that was a yeah. lot of fun you know that song all of a sudden came up and it was it happened in the tour they was like hey you guys want to play angry again and then said so that same night we played it you know so it was like <laughs> go to studying writing down the parts and then boom there you go it's kind of how it goes but but yeah. uh but this being said you know i think we always get connected to to a point in time that we think is like a band's you know apex in a way and for a lot of people, that's going to be this. And then some people, it's going to be that, et cetera. But at the same time, Megadeth 2020 is just, it's Megadeth 2020, you know? And I can't even tell you what that is right now because I haven't heard anything yeah. finished. I haven't heard anything with vocals. It's still all in process, but it's never going to be, you know, I, I tried to kind of let go of the idea of, 
you know, a band, you know, bringing back something that they've been before. I mean, some of my favorite bands like Napalm Death, Godflesh, they're bands nice. that keep pushing, you know. And you want certain elements to be awesome. there, right? So you don't want a Napalm Death album without blast beats per se, or you don't want a Godflesh album without those heavy crushing riffs. But at the same time, I've accepted over over the years that like, look, nobody's ever going to touch Scum, not even Napalm is, or in another <laughs> order, Fear, Infinite, Despair, you know, which is like, an, you know, a completely unique album to me in their, in their catalog. And the same with Godflesh, to listen to the new Godflesh album, it's in the beginning, I had to really try to understand it, you know, because it's so different. Like the first song is a very typical Godflesh song, and the next two are kind of typical Godflesh, and then it just veers off into madness, you know, and, and it took me a while to kind of grasp that last, you know, three quarters of the record, and now I absolutely love it. And, and those to me are like, the best records are the records that challenge you, but because you know the band is great, and you know it's quality stuff, you give it enough tries to where it starts entering your brain and you start understanding this is what they're doing. I get it now, you know. So yes. I'm hoping that, you know, long story short, I'm hoping this Megadeth album will kind of be that in a way where, you know, there's going to be some different things in there, but hopefully people will embrace it. And, and I have to say, I was really adamant in bringing back, you know, the roots. Yes. So I can tell. If I, I have my be, way, yeah. you and know, I, and if I, think... I have my way and if those make it onto the album, there's going to be some really happy old school thrash fans. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I agreed. And look, I think Dave must have seen the writing on the wall when he recruited Chris that he needed to reconnect with his audience. You know, the core audience, people like me who give a shit, who bought the CDs, the T-shirts, the flags, went to the concerts, bought the tour T-shirt. You know, like his whole attempt at going for the radio audience was frankly misguided, my opinion. As I say, I won't, you know, I won't put you in a difficult position to have an opinion on that one there. But, but he lost his way through whole swathes of the band's career and it never made any sense to me because he'd, he'd release an album as, um, you know, United Abominations and then he'd release Super Collider and I was like, what the hell? What, what yeah. are you doing? You know, it didn't make any sense, to be honest with you. Like, And James Lomenzo is a tremendous right-hand man like David is too. So he's always had the great musicians, but I just think with bringing Chris in and, and now yourself and, and to an extent Kiko too, because Kiko is one of, one of us, you know what I mean? Like a, a true heavy metal guitarist and original like like you you know and but my, my question after all that for you mate is you know you grew up with megadeth like i did is it weird stand in the drum stool behind dave mustaine as he's just launching into the solo in, in my darkest hour and stuff <laughs> i mean if anything it's just great man it's like you know i take those moments in and it never gets old you know even after a yes. lot of touring and you know even when you're tired and you're like okay i've been on the road for a while i'm ready to go Boom. you still gotta appreciate that you know you're part of something bigger than you you know and i think even to an extent Dave is because it wouldn't exist without all the people that come to every show and that are there chanting the lyrics and just being excited and so we're all part of something bigger in a way you know and me of course being the kid that listened to megadeth and saw them on the class of the titans tour you know mm -hmm. way back and then now is is on stage with them like of course i get an extra dose of that but but I just, you know, I look at it as like, it's something that I, I want to enjoy all the time that I get with that. You know, nobody knows how long it's going to be. I mean, we all know they've dealt with cancer last year and, and yeah. so far so good. But, you know, you never know with that stuff. My mom had, you know, she passed away in, uh, in 2016, actually, the same year that I uh, I'm sorry, joined Megadeth. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
she she had she had cancer three times in her life. You know, she had cancer when I was a little kid, and then she had cancer many years later, and then the, the third time it finally took her. So, and I don't want to presage or jinx anything or do anything bad here. Yeah. I hope to you know to all gods and heavens yeah, that yeah. nothing like that happens to Dave. But but at the same time, it really you know going through something like what I went through with my mom, like to an extent, makes you really realize that like man. You know, you got to enjoy what you got. You can't take things for granted. And so, and then Dave going through what he went through and us being successful after all that on stage earlier this year in Europe, having a great tour, you know, opening for Five Finger Death Punch to fill arenas, you know, it was amazing. So, and we were really all like, how that was going to go? Is he going to be okay? You know, is, is, is this going to take too much of a toll on him? How's his voice going to be? And as the tour progressed, it just got better and better and he regained his confidence and it was amazing. And so, I'm just really thankful, you know, to be a part of all of it and, and to be able to to contribute whatever little bit I contribute to this massive legacy. That's the legacy of Megadeth you know, and Dave's mm. legacy in many ways. Well, you're doing a tremendous job. I'm not just pissing in your pocket, as we say in Australia, mate. I mean, you are doing a bloody good job there. And I don't, I don't think you could have got anybody better than you, mate, you know, to do what you're doing up there and just your attitude and how happy you are to be doing what you do. I think that's so important because, you know, we, we as fans, mate, we only hear the music and I'm very fortunate that I do get to talk to the musicians such as yourself, but you know, it, it it does mean a lot to us. You know what I'm saying to the fans? It means a hell of a lot to the heavy metal fan. We are unique, as you know, because you're a fan. We're unlike any other music fan in the business because it the whole thing is important. Exactly, exactly. And that's why it was so important for me to, to try and, you know, connect some of the old, old Megadeth with the new Megadeth. And that doesn't mean we have to redo Killing Is My Business or Peace Sells or Rust in Peace. It's none of that. It's just bringing back some of those elements. And, and I was fortunate in that I got to tour with the band for several years before even starting to write. So I got to become intimately familiar with the drum parts on all those songs, all the little details that Nick Menza played or Gar Samuelson or Chuck Beeler, you know, and kind of absorb all that into my own system. So when it came time to write and I picked yes. up my guitar to start writing the stuff, you know, all that was there and all that experience and, and, and that new knowledge that you can only get from the inside kind of informed what came from the writing process. And so that was really important to me because as you said as a fan i want that i want that at least it doesn't have to be like a whole record full of thrashing songs but if there's some of that you know like some elements of black friday or or some elements like rattlehead or whatever then i'm a happy camper you know and (laughs) and so hopefully you know we hopefully we'll get there like i'm 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 very hopeful (laughs) yeah agreed mate I, i better make this one my last question for you i really appreciate your time by the way, um, and I'm going to take a bit of a left-hand turn, but I only spoke to Steve DiGiorgio a couple of weeks ago, and we, we spoke for a couple of hours. Tremendous fellow, like yourself, mate, just, you know, an original. And in my opinion, I'm a bass player. You know, a bit of my daughter's drums are just behind me there too, and we, we get into the rhythm right in this house here, you know. Um, but DiGiorgio was the bass master, and, and you both, I didn't realise, just before I got on the call, I checked and saw, yeah, you guys had worked together before in a project called anatomy of eye i didn't even know it was out there so what are you what are your recollections of working with de giorgio man steve is, is amazing he's, he's a great friend of mine uh for many years now he's, he's an absolutely fellow as you know tells great stories super funny and and a bass legend you know one of the absolute best like his, his playing is just one of a kind and so yeah we did the anatomy of eye album through our common friend michael who was actually 
younger brother of a, a schoolmate of mine. And, and Michael, nice. you know, I knew him at the time when I was in, in, in high school and stuff. And, and Michael somehow connected with some of those people, including Steve. So many years later, he was like, hey, I'm putting together this project. I want to have Steve and you on it. So I was like, cool. And so we did that record. And it was actually my first recording on, on my e-drums, you know, way back. It was the first time that I really sat and did that between parentheses. But uh, so it was a learning curve for sure for me. But um, I've gotten a lot better at it since. But actually, Steve and I have done more stuff since. We did an album. You should look this up. It's a band called Geoda from Argentina. We recorded okay. this a couple of years ago. And that's a, a really, that one came out really, really cool. It's, it's more along the lines of like, I would say death and cynic kind of, you know, without sounding like those oh, bands, yes. but it's kind of really progressive, crazy. Steve yeah. is absolutely stellar on the record. Like he sounds so cool. There's lots of just amazing stuff like you'll see. And it's a, it's a really beautiful album with lots of ebb and flow. And, uh, and also, you know, um, last year um, I, I did a few fill-in gigs. I, I uh, you know, like some, some rescue band rescue missions. And uh, one of them was actually playing a show with Testament in Colombia at Osfest there. Oh, and nice. so I actually got for the first time played together with Steve on stage, which was really, really great. You know, it's because we've been friends for so many years, but I've never like actually in person jammed together. This was all the remote stuff. So it was really cool to, uh, to be on stage with them and to play some Testament classics. That was a lot of fun. We got to hang out and, you know, they told me all kinds of cool stories from the early days of death and, and status. And, you know, I'm a huge status fan too. So that yeah, was all great to hear. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, man. I mean, Steve is Steve is amazing. He's been my one of my favorite, probably my favorite metal bass player forever, and uh, ever since Human and Sadus yeah. and all that stuff, you know. And I actually, uh, I've never told anybody this yet, but you know, with my own grindcore band Ben C, recently I've been releasing songs as under the Instagrind uh, series mm -hmm. online. I'm just releasing songs one by one as I'm waiting for the, the debut album to get mixed and all that stuff. I'm just keep creating and just putting songs out. One of them is actually going to have Steve on it. So you're the first one I'm telling this. I haven't told anybody this. but Scoop. But like it. Thanks. He's going to be on the short, short little crazy grind fortune. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, mate. Yeah, I, I love how all of my favorite musicians, you all get together somehow. And, and it's just this trip that seems to happen. You know, as I say, I didn't realize you'd work with Steve and... And now you're saying you're continuing to work with Steve. And, and I love that because, you know, as I say, we, we live for this stuff, man. It's uh, it's so meaningful to us that you actually put in the effort. Yeah. I mean, for us, it's all funnies, really. You know, I mean, sure, it has to pay the bills, of course. And a lot of times we have to make choices based on how we can keep doing this. And, and I'm sure that includes Steve and everybody else, too. But, but to an extent, it's also like, man... Once you become a part of this world and you're in the touring circuit and you tour with this band and then you play a festival with a bunch of bands and of course you naturally after a while you start going up to the guys you look up to and like strike up a conversation and and then next thing you know you know everybody's actually really cool and down to earth for the most part and and then you know you just make the best of that later on by when there's a thing like like Giotta as an example he was looking for a bass player and I'm like man you should get Steve you know I know Steve I've worked with him before it's not like I'm like you know, hanging out with him all the time. I mean, he's up north north of San Francisco. I'm down here in LA. We don't really hang out, but you know, yeah. Of course, I couldn't recommend anybody better. And so he reaches out to Steve. I put them in touch, and then that ends up ha happening. And and so those connections grow stronger. And it's a really beautiful thing about this scene is that you know we all love the same stuff in the end, right? <laughs> yes. No, it's very it's very true, and, and I think it's it's a uh, 
it just I suppose it's the internet and how the speed of things in this day and age. You know, it does make it possible, though, doesn't it? You know, it's uh, it's gone are the days where uh, you know the James Hetfields of the world locked musicians into the one band, like famously Jason Newstead had to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and that desire is still there, I think. But at the same time, it's like you got to be realistic. For example, at a time like this with this global pandemic, where we're basically prohibited from touring for we'll see how long, you know, I mean, Megadeth yeah. has shows lined up in next summer, but let's see if they will happen or not. So thankfully we have the internet to not only stay in touch with our loved ones across the globe and, and or even sometimes close by that we can visit, but also to keep work on as musicians, we've been extremely fortunate in that we have the technology to keep like I do session work here. You know, I, I have my drum students, most of which are online. Oh yes. Yeah. With, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, forget it we would be screwed you know we would all be like i don't know what we would be doing to be honest with you so nowadays you know it, it benefits us in good and bad times and, and uh yeah I, I take full advantage of that you know whenever i have the chance to make people you know, or be a part of something with people that i love or whose music i love i'm, I'm all for it man <laughs> well mate we're not going anywhere so however long it takes for this bloody covid thing to disappear off the face of the earth god knows even if it will but nobody's going anywhere mate there's always going to be people waiting for live heavy metal and there's always that i mean i'm not a massive fan of it but but uh lamb of god i did one of those online things you know there's online performances the other day and i think they did a bloody good job with it actually but you know it's not the same we know that but it's you know it's 10 percent of the 100 percent that you get if you're at the gig but it's better than nothing Definitely, man. Yeah, I see Obituary is doing one too, so that's yes. pretty killer. I think they're playing. I'm like gonna watch that. <laughs> records and stuff. Yeah, that's I killer. saw them. I mean, you know, that's be good. Was that? I only saw them last year, actually, and I caught up with Trevor. And fuck, they're a good band, man. They just—it was like, and I said this to to Daz last night. We're at a point now where death metal's become dad rock because I looked around me at the gig and we're all sort of in our mid forties and having our light beer because we've got to drive home. <laughs> After the <laughs> and, <laughs> and, But we're all getting into it and yelling. It's the first time in years I remember shouting at the stage and I was just so, so happy to be there. And I knew Ralph Santola, so I'm screaming, do it for Ralph. Come on. Like they're a bloody football team or something, or, you know, <laughs> you just get right into it in the moment. <laughs> that's what's beautiful about it man i think it's the voice of a generation in a way you know yeah sure i don't know if, if the younger generation is going to catch on as much as as we did at the time but yeah man i mean a band like obituary as an example it never gets old to me no it just uh, yeah, every yeah, time yeah, you yeah. see them live there's such, a, there's such an energy that happens there's such a vibe that's just only they could do it you know you take you take uh, Donald behind the drums and you put another drummer and it's just not going to be the same. It has to be Donald. It has to be yes. John on vocals. It has to be Trevor. You know, that's obituary. It's like, it's just amazing. It's so true. Like in, in Australia, of course, we've got this massive ACDC, ACDC love, you know, and and it, it's really pretty weird, i got to tell you, amongst the local musicians here in Brisbane. They love fucking ACDC. Now, I can appreciate ACDC, but they're never going to be my Alpha and Omega because I'm a bassist and that's not what they do. They're all about driving guitars, you know. That's what that's about. But whenever an ACDC tune comes on and we're out drinking and just being idiots, they'll jump up and down and stuff like that and I'll just sit there and then I'll be in the car driving home or whatever and I'll stick on, you know, you know, chopped an half or something and I'm like, 
come on come on that's me you know that's what gets my blood pumping and it's you know we're rare you know us diehard extreme metal fans but we're here and as i say mate we're not we're not going to go anywhere anytime soon good man good yeah i think once that lives in you it lives in you forever you can't music has it's its own thing you know (laughs) it's like a virus but a good one Absolutely it is. Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah. Well, mate, look, I'd better let you go. Thank you so much for your time, uh, first and foremost. And Thank you, you know, Andy. It's been so much fun, man. Great chat. Well, just thanks for, for doing what you're doing, mate. It's, it's very meaningful what you're doing. And, I, and, I, and I've said this, you know, a few times now that, you know, to you, to you guys that are in the big bands doing what you do, but it is really important that you keep doing what you're doing. And it is very meaningful that you're doing what you're doing. And we appreciate it as fans, man. So just, you know, Godspeed and, I hope we see you down here again real soon. Thank you, man. That's great to hear. And we're going to carry on. (laughs) (laughs) All right, brother. Thanks so much for the chat. Appreciate it. All my best, man. Cheers. Take care. Thanks, mate. Gotcha. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. And my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. That interview subject was the one and only Dirk Viburen from Soilwork, Cadaver, and Megadeth. Thanks so much for listening.